0: I talk with newer people now, and they're wanting to get a grand slam on their first deal. I'm like, tamp it down go smaller. Most brokers are not going to give you much attention. If you're looking at an A-class 200-unit property, you've never put a syndication together or purchased a deal. I would be worried if you got awarded the deal because it probably means you're overpaying because a broker's like a surety of close over price, usually something that big and new. You're probably looking at a seven-figure non-refundable earnest money day one. So maybe the seller's willing to give you 60 days to try to close it. If not, they get a million dollars and then they go to the next guy if they're not in a hurry. So if somebody's, new and you're getting a $30 million deal awarded to you, I would wonder why you got it awarded, not somebody that has experience, that's closed deals, maybe with that broker or without, but has some kind of a track record.
1: Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you are looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro. What's up guys, Real Estate Cody here inviting you to join our Preferred Investors Club. Now what is the Preferred Investors Club? That is an exclusive list of investors that get early priority access to all of our investment offerings before it goes out to our general database. Now why is that important? I'll tell you because our last two investment offerings oversubscribed by several million dollars each and each had a waiting list so if you want to get in and you want to make sure that you don't miss out on any of the offerings that we're putting out there, make sure to get on this list. So we just launched Hollister Oak Apartments, our most recent acquisition, and we're already well on our way to oversubscribing on that offering as well. So if you want early access, get in now. Go to www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash investor form. Drop your contact information in there so we can get you added onto that list so you can get your priority access. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now to the show. Good morning, everybody. This is Real Estate Cody, and this is the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. Glad you're joining us today. Before we get into the show, if you have not done so already, make sure to go check out our latest acquisition. Make sure to check out Hollister Oak Apartments. Visit us at www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash Hollister Oaks. If you want to take an opportunity to take a look at that, the subscription is filling up very quickly, and we want to make sure that we get you in if you're interested. So if you want to get into that opportunity, make sure to visit www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash Hollister Oaks. With that, we have a very special guest on the show, Mr. Nicholas Espinette. Nick is the founder and CEO of Thrive Multifamily. He has five and a half years of experience with multifamily real estate, nine years of experience as a small business owner and 24 years experience managing physical therapy teams. So with that, Nick, welcome to
0: the show. Hey, Cody, I appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to sit down and visit with you today.
1: Man, I'm excited to connect with you as well. I know, Nick, we met back in, I think, 2019, late 2019 at a real estate conference in Dallas. And um, at the time, you had already had a lot of success and momentum up to that point. But man, you've been off to the races since then. So uh, I'd like to kind of start right there, man. Tell the audience a little (laughs) bit more about your background and how you found yourself in multifamily real estate. Sure. I appreciate it. No, this
0: year has been an exciting year, but I um, went to school to be a physical therapist and then around probably 2015, started looking more for something to do with my retirement. You know, My wife and I were not happy with the stock market and wanted something that we could be more um, hands-on with and and honestly, just be able to understand a little easier. And so we started looking at single family investing, but we kept coming across multifamily stuff as we were educating ourselves and ended up at a conference, joined a a group that more of an education and investment group. And it took me about a year and a half and was able to coast, Indicate my first deal, which was a hundred-unit property in Abilene, Texas. Which, uh, if you guys aren't from Texas, it's about two hours west of Dallas-Fort Worth, population of uh, about one hundred twenty-five, hundred thirty thousand. But we were looking, started looking in secondary markets. Just to, at the time getting started, we weren't getting much traction in DFW, so we started looking at secondary markets in Texas with a population of over hundred thousand and with more three or more um, economic drivers and you know
1: positive job growth and positive population growth. Yes. Like I said, you've had a lot of momentum since that first one and you've had a lot of success. I kind of want to go back and and kind of pick at your... Experience as a healthcare worker, I think that's a similarity that you and I share. Uh, you know, I, I'm a registered nurse. You come from a physical therapy background, and we talked about that. You spent a couple of decades in in physical therapy, 24 years or so. And one of the things that we love doing, uh, just from my background, is appealing to healthcare providers because, as you mentioned, you know, I think healthcare providers are very intelligent people, right? They're highly educated people, and that's across multiple disciplines. But when it comes to financial literacy, we, we discuss this all the time where there seems to be a lack of financial literacy and education when it comes to how do you preserve your long-term wealth? How do you really position yourself for a nice, comfortable retirement? And the reason this is so important to me personally is because as you know, is as healthcare providers, we give our everything to taking care of other people, right? Physically, mm-hmm. mentally, we give everything that we have to caring for people. And it takes a special person to do that but we don't give ourselves that same attention. And hey, kudos for you to figuring this out in 2015. Of like, hey, there has to be a better way to do this. So I kind of want to start there. Tell me a little bit more about that transition and that discovery of realizing that you know just being that physical therapist for 40, 50 years, isn't going to get you the lifestyle that you were hoping to achieve.
0: No, you know, I mean I ha- could see the writing on the wall I, as I was getting older. Physical therapy can be a little more physical demanding and just as nursing can if you're moving patients and lifting people. Now you can get in more in the administrative side and not have to do that. But there other days when I was in at the time, my low to mid forties, like I can't imagine doing this when I'm late fifties in my sixties or even, you know, in my seventies, if we're not if we're still needing to have an income at that time. And then I was blessed that my wife's father has a small apartment complex and has done different real estate. He's got, you know, commercial lots or just vacant lots or single family homes, you know, and just talking with him and seeing what that created for him, that's kind of started me down that line. And like you said earlier about, you know, healthcare providers. There's no requirement for any type of financing or economics. So my friends now that have uh, kids going into healthcare or medicine, I'm like, tell them to take a, at least one or two economics classes, a finance class, something to have some education on it. And as a healthcare provider, you're you make a decent living, but you're never going to become wealthy. And, and I had the thought of especially having children if, if I break my leg or can't work for two months. And we, yeah, we have disability and those things to back it up. But I I, I don't like depending on Something like that. A great thing about real estate in general and multifamily is you you get the, it's the passive income we're all looking for to where you can be laid up for two months or take a vacation for
1: two months and you still have income coming in. That's such a great point, Nick. And, and I know I was a personal victim of that where I, I had a back injury myself early 2020. I was out for a month. And, you know, like you said, we have benefits and stuff to cover that. But if you if you put that into perspective, if that was a long-term injury and I was, you know, going into this for six months, a year or whatever, you know, that would be a substantial decrease in my income. And that was a really powerful moment. I was already working on multifamily real estate, but it was even more of a powerful moment just to realize that, you know, like this is a real scenario where like you said, healthcare providers, especially as they get older, they've been doing this for a long time. Your body starts to break down. You're more prone to injury. And uh, that can take a really significant impact on not just your physical health, but your financial health. So very good point there. Now, after making this transition, because it, it's my understanding, if I recall, recall correctly from the last time we talked, you're a full-time real estate. You were able to transition out of physical mm-hmm. therapy altogether. Since that transition... Have you found that people within your community, healthcare professionals in particular, have drawn to you or, or started being intuitive about what you're doing and why you made that transition?
0: A couple I was doing the last seven years, I did contract home health. So it's a much more solo. You're not um, interacting with colleagues very much. So I've had one or two reach out and want to know what I'm doing. But it's still you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I'm kind of just letting them see When somebody starts showing interest, I, you know, that Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, just trying to get a different perspective on how money works instead of working for money, getting the money to work for you type thing. So it hasn't been as much as I'd hope, but it's slowly, I think, coming around as they're seeing success, seeing I haven't, you know, I think a lot of them expected me to be back knocking for my job. And I still, one of the guys that I, worked with, and he has a little contract company. I see him when I work out about once a month, he'll ask, are you ready for some patients? And I, I just very nicely say, uh, no, thanks. But you know, at the time we're working on closing a deal that's going to get a fairly significant acquisition fee at the close. So I want to say I can, I'll make almost what I made in a year in in the ne- in this three months of just buckling down really hard for a while. So of course I don't say that, but it's, it's just getting to where, you know, seeing the difference of what the, the, income and the amount of money and the wealth that can be generated and done passively once you get through that closing time is just very eye-opening. When I I worked in one of the major hospitals here in Fort Worth for 10 or 12 years and just go and visit with some of the guys, you know, there's still some quite a few of the people working there that have been working there since I, you know, so that's another 10 years. So they've been there 20 plus years and still the same thing. They're Punching the clock every morning and going until the day's done. So it, I'd love to share it with them and help them know that you don't have to have a six-figure physician's salary to get out of the rat race. It's our nurses they can definitely pivot into to doing this and having more freedom, but they got to have their mindset to want to do it.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It is definitely m- very much a mindset shift for sure, and and it's eye-opening. I think when you first discover this and you you you, you first realize this potential. You know, at first, there's a lot of hesitancy, right? There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of concern. I mean, we've been taught and ingrained from the time that we were in grade school to be employees and be dependent on somebody else telling us when we go to work and when we clock in and out how much we get paid. So it's, it's hard to make that transition if you don't have that entrepreneurial spirit innately. But as you mentioned, man, it's such a powerful tool. And, and especially once you discover the, the power of things like apartment syndication and, and economies of scale and doing one transaction that could really replace your entire income for the year, it's really a powerful tool that I hope more people discover. And what I'm finding, in, in particular from healthcare workers, and we'll get off the healthcare path here in just a bit, but what I'm finding is a lot of healthcare workers are getting more and more fatigued. And, and COVID, I think, really accelerated that fatigue because, again, talking about just the amount of emotional investment and physical investment we put into our work. COVID really took a toll on all healthcare workers, especially at the peak, right? And, and and the hospital systems and these very strict policies, government policies, blah, blah, blah. You know, here it is two years later, we're still hearing it every day. I, if I hear rumblings more and more of healthcare workers just Getting really just tired of doing the same old thing, and now they're they're asking, well, what's next? You know, what can I do next? And so that's why we're here, man. That's why we provide this medium to help educate and and expand our horizons. And and like I said, man, hopefully open the eyes of people that are looking for similar transition as you did. So, um, right. Yeah, so right. great message there. So all right, Nick. So you started in multifamily real estate, 2015, roughly. You mentioned it took you about a year and a half to get into that first apartment deal, assuming you were still working during that time. Talk to us about that year and a half. You know, when some people hear that, it, it's important for people to realize when you're making this transition to multifamily, it feels like the mo- the world moves really fast, but nothing really moves very fast. right? It takes a lot of time and discipline. So talk to us about that first year and a half and that grind that you went to to get through that first deal.
0: Sure. So 15 was more doing research, due diligence and Then I um, joined in a program in um, March of 16 and went through the program, didn't really start applying myself to probably later in 16. So I'll say fall of 16 is when I really started putting my nose to the grindstone. And, you know, I was still working full time. At the time, had two younger children. So I started at first tried to, you know, do the training and the education part at night and would end up falling asleep. So what I had to start doing is just waking up an hour before I was normally got up to go to work. I would do 55 minutes of the training, you know, get some coffee going, sit down, crank through about an hour, 55 minutes an hour, and then get ready and go to work. And then met another guy, um Brad Abbott, who I partnered with on most of my deals. And he and I would get together after our kids. He he has children about the same age, say nine or nine thirty, we'd get on the phone and just analyze deals together. We'd sit down and, you know, back then we didn't have Zoom to where we could share screens. There was something called join.me. And I think you got like 15 minutes of shared screen time that you could use for the free version. So we would just talk over the phone like, hey, try this, what about try this and sell, you know, C23? Or you know, were just both sitting there kind of analyzing deals and and working through probably an hour, sometimes two or three hours a night, three or four nights a week. But then I was in turn getting up at five the next morning. So I just went through a stretch of five, six hours sleep a night because that is something that I'd set a goal, set my mind that I wanted to do it. And we um, you know, being new, we needed to find somebody with some experience. So we through networking, met another more experienced investor that we just built our relationship with, got to know each other to where we'd be comfortable investing together and. In, And talked to him and said, Hey, if we find a deal that looks promising, would you be interested in investing with us? And he, he agreed. And so he partnered with us on the first deal. He got a bigger cut, just, you know, he had as a more experienced person, you know, that first deal is not by any means making me wealthy, but it, you know, it's throwing off a little cash and, but it got my foot in the door to where I just completed my seventh deal. And that was from when the first one closed in February of 18 till now. It's under four years that I've done seven syndications at about 1150 total units between all those. And it just until recently, I wasn't doing those long, you know, 12 hour days, 12, 15 hour days trying to get something done. And, you know, and then it took me another probably four and a half years before I, I completely phased out of therapy. Being a contract home health therapist, I was able to kind of gradually bring the therapy down as the real estate went up. So I didn't have to quit cold turkey. You know, and one of the um, big concerns was, you know, how what are we gonna do with healthcare? But there are there are other options out there, you know. I think that's a golden handcuff for a lot of people that they have their um their healthcare and their benefits, but there are affordable options through I mean, we found it through a cost sharing program, but there's you know, there are options that people can uh, can take. Cause that was one of my fears is you know, moving out, more made that transition going from a W-2 employee to a 1099, but there are options
1: that are that are reasonable sure sure yeah i mean again it goes back to the point it's it's a pretty intimidating feeling when you talk about transitioning out of that quote unquote security of having that w2 where you had benefits and you know everything else that comes with that but um, I mean, look how how well it's paid off for you. You know, now you're a full-time real estate investor. Not only are you having a lot of financial success in, in the development of your business, you probably are getting some amazing tax incentives for being a real estate professional, but now you have control of your schedule and your time. And that's the most important thing. That's the most important commodity. We we always talk about that. But the benefit of being a W-2 employee and growing your business is you still have an income stream that you can. Help cover your home expenses while your business grows, and that will help you make more sound decisions. So, I like what you mentioned about you know, you made that slow transition of as your real estate portfolio increased, you reduced your W 2 hours. You did that, it looks sounds like over a period of time, and that seems like a very reasonable process to go through. No, for sure. I, I was blessed to get that. Somebody that has a
0: W 2 and is doing real estate can focus or does not have to. Be a self-focused, like my first deal. You know, I was not looking to replace my income with that deal. I was looking to get my foot in the door. And, you know, we took a smaller, our sponsor overrides only 10%. And we gave half of that to the experienced sponsor and myself and the other new guy, Brad Abbott. We took the other half. And so, you know, I talk with newer people now and they're wanting to get a grand slam on their first deal. I'm like, tamp it down, go smaller. Most brokers are not going to give you much attention. If you're looking at an A-class 200-unit property, you've never put a syndication together or purchased a deal, I would be worried if you got awarded the deal because it probably means you're overpaying because brokers like a surety of close over price, usually something that big and new. You're probably looking at a seven-figure non-refundable earnest money day one. So maybe the seller's willing to give you 60 days to try to close it if not they get a million dollars and then they go to the next guy if they're not in a hurry so if somebody's new and you're getting a 30 million dollar deal awarded to you I would wonder why you got it awarded not somebody that has experience that's closed deals maybe with that broker or without but has some kind of a track record
1: yeah yeah no absolutely you're you're absolutely right and we we Probably don't see it often, but it does happen. And, and you're it kind of has you scratching your head like, uh oh, but you know, what did they just get into? Sure. But you know, hopefully they make it out okay. But I think you brought up a really good point here talking about that first deal. And th- and this is for both active and passive investors. I think the first one is always the most difficult, right? It's the most time spent studying that analysis paralysis, getting comfortable with just Finally making the jump and the leap and for active investors like you and I, you know, obviously there's a lot of grunt work in developing that credibility and proving that you can have that confidence of shorty of closing to your team and the brokers or whatnot. And then for the passive investor, you know, there's a little bit of unsettling as far as. Man, I'm about to give this guy fifty, dollars $100,000, not knowing if I'm going to get it back. Because you know, sure. ultimately, they're investing in you. you know, they're not investing <laughs> in the deal. They're investing in you. 100%. So there's a lot of trust that comes with that. So, but after you discover that first one, the first one, you're not getting rich off that. If, even if you make no return, it doesn't matter. It's just about getting your foot in the door. It's about that long-term scalability is what it gets you access to. And that's, that's sure. the focus for you. So you got to, like you said, you got to do what it takes to get in that first one. Same thing for a passive investor too. You know, eventually, you got to kind of take a leap of faith and, and find somebody that you trust and, and make that first investment. And man, once you do and you realize how this business operates, why would you just stop with one, right? You're just going to want to continue doing it over and over and over. And so continue to go down your path. You know, you got in the first deal, year and a half after kind of putting in the work. I think you said it was about ten months before you got in the second one. Correct.
0: Roughly. Our first deal closed in a uh, February of eighteen. Second
1: one is December of eighteen. So the snowball started. The momentum started to build. And I think, like I <laughs> said, that's roughly around the time we met, two thousand nineteen. I think you, you know, you had, a few, had several deals going, and then all of a sudden, this this freight train called COVID comes in twenty twenty, and just really just knocked everybody for a loop. Talk to us a little bit about where you were at in your business, and then when that started occurring. How did it affect you and how did you guys weather that storm? I said we've had one in February of 18 and then December of 18. Then
0: we had a, a larger property that we closed in August of 19. We we came in and completely painted the exteriors. We The clubhouse, they had turned part of the clubhouse into a fitness center. It looked like it was still straight out of the 80s. And so we, there was also a laundry room on the facility, on the property, but every every unit had a washer and dryer and the property was making 20 bucks a month on, on laundry. So there was, the laundry room wasn't even worth keeping. So we opted to shut down the laundry room, move the fitness, like completely get it, fix me and put in a nice fitness center, take where the fitness center was in the clubhouse, open it up a lot and put a, just a ton of work into it. We completed that mid February or so of 2020. We were going to have a big kickoff, open house. We have a big TV in there. We're going to have a March Madness. Have all the tenants in there, like food and stuff. Well, COVID hit. It was right around the time all that shut all that down. So that got put on pause. And when it first started happening, we didn't know what was going to happen. So we started running models like, what if we don't collect half our rent? How much cash do we have? To how long can we survive? So we we immediately stopped distributions just to be safe and started. Just any money that we're making, we were trying to work with tenants. Anybody that was sick, we were you know, working on. We we didn't want to evict, but if it's some people just stopped paying, we we were trying to do evictions. And then they had the eviction moratorium that the the federal government imposed, which was um, you know frustrating because we still had to make our um, debt payments. We had to pay our electric bill, our water bill, pay our our uh, um, employees and things like that. So you know, government's telling people they don't have to pay rent, but we still had to pay our part. And we didn't want handouts. We just wanted, you know, if somebody's sick. Let's get them the initial payment stimulus that went out for rent and whatnot for people went straight to the tenants. And we had several tenants that they were still not coming in paying because they knew we couldn't evict them. And we are, we've we gotten most of that cleaned up. You know, we kind of were working with people that were doing the Texas rental relief, trying to get their money in. But, uh, you know, we have started uh, distributions on some of our properties. A couple are still having a bit of a challenge, but we're uh, fighting back to get that where it needs to be. But it didn't end up being as bad as we thought it could be. But um, at the same time, also, is taken off. We, you know, we're considering listing our properties in the next few months. We're getting broker opinions of values on all of them just because the demand for multifamily has taken off. You know, A lot of people are wanting to get out of medical or retail and some of those things that, that took a really big hit. Most of multifamily didn't because people will always need a place to live, especially if you know you're investing in the right submarket, which is kind of kind of our first rule is landlord-friendly states or you know business-friendly states to where you're not going to have as uh, punitive of laws for landlords. And and you know Texas is great, but we we still had a period of having to not evict, and then you know even now with having which we have Fannie Mae loans, which are federally backed, we have to give 30 day notice uh, notice to vacate before we can evict instead of a three-day like Texas. So that's been a bit challenging because you know give notice on the fourth, file for the eviction on the fourth of the next month. Well, they've got another month of rent they owe you at that point. And then if it takes more than 30 days to get them out, then you've got a third month that you owe. So we are seeing a little more on the people that we're evicting we're in, can end up with two or three months of bad debt instead of just one. But it, it's a challenge. We're working through it. It'll get better, but I kind of got off on a tangent. But the demand of people Coming in by and buying, I think you know we're going to sell these properties at a much lower cap rate than we underwrote for our reversion cap rate, which is going to help recover some of the cash flow that was missed during COVID
1: or due to COVID. Yeah, you know it was a really interesting dynamic to watch unfold, right? I think you know when you made that first purchase in 2016, you know probably still one of the. Arguably the best times to be investing because there was already accelerated appreciation in the market after 2016 up until COVID. And then everybody thought COVID was going to be the crash, right? That was going to be the big correction. Everybody kind of took a big breath and said, uh oh, here it comes. And then every month it was like, okay, collections are still maintaining, collections are still maintaining. And particularly in, like you said, landlord friendly states, people were still maintaining occupancies and, and NOI that was covering their debt coverage ratio. And so people were still. Maintaining and coming out of COVID, like you said, it was just this bombshell that goes off. And now everybody and their mother wants to be a multifamily investor, right? And so the amount of appreciation that we've seen has just been absolutely incredible. And so, very, very good for us as active buyers and active investors, no doubt for sure. But I think going back to your experience about, you know, through that COVID, I mean, being able to weather that circumstance was a product of two circumstances, in my opinion. Number one, just the resiliency of the asset class and you know it was really one of the only asset classes that had fiscal policy protecting both the business owner and the tenants to some degree right you had PPP programs that, that people could take advantage of you had rental assistance so it was like one of those only asset classes that were really had some level of at least quote unquote protection from the government to make sure that nobody was getting displaced but two I think it just speaks to you as the operator as well being able to recognize like hey we need to get into a cash position we need to make sure that our bank balances are are healthy enough to weather this storm even if we're losing income and i think that was the really big key driver for a lot of people coming out of covid is how they handled it and you know those that came out relatively unscathed like yourself or people that were, you know, making the right decisions, doing the right thing, taking a very strategic and proactive approach. And so, you know, kudos to you. Good job on that. And then now look, man, you're in a great position. Tell me a little bit more about coming out of the COVID pandemic what you're seeing in the marketplace. Is there any surprises that you're seeing right now in this marketplace compared to, you know, maybe pre-COVID?
0: Surprises. The volume of, of transactions is surprising. There's a lot going on uh, close to at the end of one in September, uh, one in December in Houston, and then also I was part of another property that closed in Dallas September, so I had deals closed ten days apart in September, which was exciting at one point they were both going to close on the same day, which I was kind of hoping to be able to brag about that, but they just things moved with the covid things are slower to close, but um, how it went from almost just sputtering along to just blasting off with deals that are out there, deals that still underwrite you know one reason I'm big on Houston is depends on what data you're looking at, but Houston is Projected to be anywhere from one to three largest population growth in the next five and ten years. So and at the same time, Houston's they're way behind on product. So there, there's fewer rental units, but also homes to buy. So there's fewer places for people to live than than should be coming into the market. And then you throw on top of that that people are moving here for whatever reason from Denser populated states. And so it's just pushing that population up. You know, and Dallas isn't too far behind. You know, it depends. It probably could make a good argument for Dallas or Houston, either one asks, but, you know, Dallas does have more deliveries coming. So they're keeping up with their supply better than Houston has. But I think both are great places, you know, really kind of the Southeast. You think of the Sunbelt all the way to Arizona or places where people are moving in large numbers. And so that's going to keep lifting those rents up. And lifting the demand because they're going. I mean, we know we're not buying these for super long holds. We're looking three to five years to turn them, and then let leave some meat on the bone for the next buyer to be able to come in and implement their plan. And you know, just because you start getting longer out there, that time period, um, you don't have your capex dollars that you brought in either from your capital raise or from the lender. And as things start to break, that's when it's time to maybe move on to the let the next buyer come in.
1: Well, let me ask you to that point because that's a really good point. Because we've had a little bit of shift in our investing thesis over the past, you know, eighteen months or so. To your point about we're seeing this extreme cap rate compression. You know, we're seeing a high high demand, as you mentioned, a lot of liquidity coming into multifamily from all different sectors in places like Texas, which we're very fortunate to be in. But it's also equally as frustrating because used to you'd be one of Ten offers now. You're one of like 30 or 40. You know the best and final rounds are 10 and 12 deep every time. So it's it's insane. But nonetheless, everything is basically trading on a premium now that you you've have a few assets <laughs> in Houston. I mean, you know, right? The value add deals, the 70s product is trading at a four and a half cap. Uh, that's just a very small spread between your A class deals selling at a four cap. Has your thesis changed at all? Because of that accelerated appreciation across all asset classes, C class or A class, have you made a pivot or changed your your strategy to maybe go towards more a different type of asset class, or are you sticking with the same?
0: I'm looking more at 80s. I'm you know I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to move into that 2000 brand new stuff. I'm not opposed to it, but. That would be a larger capital raise. Most of them that I'm comfortable with right now. So that's part of the reason. But I agree with you on the cap rates. You, you're buying, especially a B, very close to what you're getting a C-class property on for your cap rate. And, you know, and there's concern that our cap rate's going to creep up. We build in, you know, our reversion cap rate or our sales cap rate is we try to come above what the current, not necessarily what we're buying, definitely what we're buying it for, but also what things are selling for in the market. You know, say like you said in Houston, a C-class is a four and a half. We probably underwrite selling at a four, seven, five or five just to have that cushion because as interest rates start coming up, who knows what's going to happen. But you could make the counter argument that as long as people are moving to Houston or Dow, whatever these markets are, it's going to push rents up. You know, is it going to be like, are we going to have LA rents, you know, in five, 10, or 20 years? And if, if rents keep growing, then the cap rates could could be held down. And and with inflation, just you have this property and really nothing else happens. But just from inflation the, the you know you have a hard asset that's going to appreciate in um, in value over time as as inflation you know if your money's sitting in the bank it's buying you're going to be able to buy less with it tomorrow than you are today but yeah. but this apartment or real estate um, some type of hard asset's going to be growing Along with the inflation.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, not to pick on our, our fundamentalists out there. You know, uh, it, if you compare where we're looking and analyzing deals now versus two years ago, you know, to your point about like the reversion cap, for example, you know, you typically have a you know, 150, 200 basis point spread on your reversion, right? And that's your conservative assumption. Well, now, like you said, 2550 is kind of like your, that's about as far as you're going to go. But I think, for the fundamentalists out there, they'll look at that and they're, they're scratching their heads wondering how we can make sense of that. But as you're alluding to, man, there's so many dynamic factors that are playing into what we're seeing in the marketplace right now. The supply and demand imbalance uh, is incredible. I mean, we are really in a critical housing shortage development is not keeping up with pace at all. And the input costs of developments are further driving that appreciation. And then, like you said, you take into the migratory patterns, the things that we're seeing, the liquidity, the demand. I mean, all these factors that are playing in that are further fueling the longevity, I think, of what we're seeing in the multifamily space. So uh, along that same vein, Nick, let's go ahead and whip out your crystal ball. Tell us, (laughs) in your own opinion, what do you see happening over the next three to five years in multifamily? I think just evidence of my purchases I'd see
0: it continuing to grow especially as covid restrictions you know in some of these more densely populated states or cities and more restrictive uh, rules are going to push people to less restrictive states so with that continued population shift it's going to keep pressure especially you're looking at 70s and 80s product you can't build it construction costs are well above Purchase costs, although they're getting close, it's still not there. I, I think last I heard, it's um, and this has been a few months ago. that, that New construction is about two hundred fifty thousand a unit, and, and you know, we the deal we just closed in Houston was a mid eighties property. We got for somewhere in the mid eighties uh, purchase price, and so you know, you, there's no way we can get to that same point. You know, you couldn't build something in that neighborhood, and, and you know, target the workforce housing. You know, our our targeting tenants that are making forty fifty thousand dollars a year with that property. You know, we have another one that was in the Med Center in Houston, and we're Targeting a different demographic, and we paid quite a bit more for it. But it, it's still just the price of the land there in the Med Center in Houston is uh if somebody wanted to build something there, they're going to build an A class. It's just you're not going to you could just to buy the land is too cost prohibitive to come in and put. workforce. for us. now, that's a mid '80s property too, and we're, we're positioning it as an affordable option to all the A class stuff that's going up around it. And we're just being in the Med Center. There's a a bigger demand for furnished units. So we are in the process of furnishing at least 10% of our units. And some of them we're going to rent for, a, you know, we have residents that are coming for trainings, physicians or n- traveling nurses. We also have a lot of people in the of uh, Med Center that come from all over the world for treatments and they need a place to stay. And so we're trying to, we're setting that up. We're supposed to have a, three units being furnished as we're speaking right now. So that was a pivot that we've never done before. And any other, because most of your properties are not looking for furnished units, and but it's just a a, a niche there in the med center. I think maybe in a, a core district, you know, it's in, in a more central area, you could have even some work travelers or corporate units set up. But our, our focus is going to be towards medical, either professionals or families that are there for um, treatment, or while their their loved one or family member is in in the hospital or for some treatment, they, the family needs a nice furnished place to stay.
1: Sure, sure. We didn't get a chance to talk about this before the show, Nick, but I actually looked at that asset as well, and it's a superb location right there next to the medical center here in Houston. A uh, phenomenal location, really cool asset too. I think it's got a really cool story. I think it was a previous conversion and all that yeah, nice stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was a. I don't know if it was an Econo or some type of like extended stay type hotel that. Yeah. They, they the developer converted. We actually come into a couple of units. I think still have the original carpet from the the hotel days. Like, woo! This is definitely a very uh. A, a, Old carpet in here, so but it's good. It's good opportunity for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's one. Of the, it was probably one of those like true traditional value add opportunities where you can go in there and make some upgrades and, and actually really force that value uh, injection. You know, which is as you know, mm-hmm. right? It's with syndication being what it is, a lot of these multifamily products has been traded hand over hand. You know, every two three years, and so everybody's been implementing a value add. So sure. a lot of the value add plays have really been kind of hard to really. find. Harder to find. Absolutely. So, but well, Nick, we're kind of getting almost near the end of our time, but before we kind of get to our final four here, I, I want to give an opportunity to kind of appeal to some of our past investors that may be listening. Uh, it sounds like, you know, I know you've got assets all across Texas, everywhere from, like you said, Abilene, Houston, Dallas, um, you got a property in Colorado as a past investor, but looking at your portfolio, are you primarily focused just here in Texas now? I mean, what's what's your core thesis there? I'm considering branching out
0: if I can find a partner that can be a local boots on the ground, but you know, I live in Texas, so it's one of the better places to invest, if not the best. So why fly when I don't have to? You know, it's a, I can still drive to Houston and back in a day. It's a bit of a haul, but you know I did it Monday of this week. I drove down and saw both properties and um, spent a little time on both of them and, and made it back home by six o'clock in the evening or so. You know I did leave at five or so in the morning, but you are know, able to get down there and get back in a reasonable time. And you know I'd love to do something in Florida. Georgia, Alabama, even um, Arizona, and then maybe even Tennessee or the Carolinas—I um, you know, think—are all have opportunity. But you know, not having—I've—I've I've, I've developed a few local contacts in those spots, so it's something I would consider. But again, if it's something I'm going after with just me and my partners that I have now, staying right here in our backyard is much easier than having to hop on a plane to to go take care
1: of things. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we're we're blessed to be located where we're at here in these markets for sure. For sure. And uh, it, it's nice to be able to be in the backyard of, of such a desirable investment market. So, you know, Nick, when we talk about from a passive investor perspective, when it comes to the sponsor, that's the most important part of the deal in our opinion, right? It's, it's the one that you're putting your trust in to protect your capital. And so when we talk about betting the sponsor, there's making sure that you have the experience, making sure that you've kind of gone through some downturns or some tough times to kind of Show that you're battle tested, so to speak, and then you know there's being in great markets and and having an alignment of investing interests and thesis. So, man, you check all those boxes. And so, is there anything else that you would like to highlight as far as your career that you know would be a reason why people would want to get connected with you?
0: Well, the bullet points you hit on, you know, we've had one property that's had challenges. I've learned a lot from that one. One thing I consider too when you're looking at investing with somebody is do they have A decent amount of capital. If challenges break out at a property, can they come in and and cover some costs to where they're not going to need to do a capital call? You know, no one wants to do a capital call, but you know, having a sponsorship team that has some liquidity in the bank to be able to cover something—you know—that was something we were worried about going through COVID. Is you know, what if we hit a point where we're not covering? We've burned through our cash. What kind of cash do we ask the sponsorship group? And, And that was early on in COVID. We saw that we didn't need there, but you know, knowing that we had other capital we could bring to the table if we had to. It's not something we wanted to do. But before we had to ask the lender to let us skip a payment or two, it's like, all right, we got money in the bank, personal or business accounts that we can come in and help the property. We didn't end up having to go that route during COVID, during the middle of it. But you know, that I think is a something to check with your your sponsors. Because if, if you buy enough properties, you're going to have a challenge. You know, if you end up with 10 or 20, something crazy, it could be a fire, something that unexpected, unless you're extremely lucky. And I don't really believe in luck too much. It's the odds are going to catch up with you eventually. So having now, we just completed our seventh. So having the experience to do that, getting a team around you, you know, I have a, um, Myself and Brad Abbott have done one. We've got another partner we've been working with, and down in Houston, has a close relationship with a property management company, You know, being involved in that, making sure your sponsors are good communicators. How often are they going to be sending out updates? One thing I tell newer people too is when you ask some questions when you're looking to invest in a deal, and if the people do not respond to you in a r- relatively timely manner, or they seem annoyed that you're asking questions. I'd probably go somewhere else because they're trying to get your money. Once they have your money, they're, they're definitely not going to get any better at communicating once the deal closes.
1: Man, that's such a great point. Authenticity is such an important thing when it comes to developing that trust and that relationship for sure. And you want people that are genuine and you got to take the approach of, listen, whether you invest with me or not, doesn't matter. It's about you. The person it's about in, in, you know, protecting that integrity of the relationship. So I uh, agree with that 100%. wholeheartedly. So wholeheartedly. Well, Nick, man, this has been a great conversation, but this has been awesome. And I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we got a few more questions for you before okay. we wrap up. You know, Nick, one thing that we do like to know from all of our guests on the show is what do you like to do for your own continued education to further your investing? I read almost daily. and
0: uh, not always real estate books, just personal development, health or exercise. Attend conferences. I'm also part of a, a mastermind that goes that works on, you know, on branding, relationship building, goal setting, things like that.
1: Well, Nick, looking back at your history and your trajectory, I mean, what was that one moment of time or one event that really changed the course of your trajectory?
0: You know, um, I think deciding I was going to buckle down, you know, I, I joined an education group, which I had to write a pretty substantial check. And, and it, I've made that multifold over back. But that motivated me to like, I've got to apply myself or I'm, I'm wasting this money. But getting the first deal to close, you know, I kind of missed that excitement. You know, we closed the deal December thirty first, and I was excited about it. But I remember we closed the first one; it was like you wanted to jump up and down and and celebrate. And you know, this one was like, all right, got another one. Also, being around, you know, I'm still part of the real estate group, seeing other new people get their first deal, and just seeing that excitement and knowing that what they're feeling. So, but but I think it was getting the first one, seeing how much money that was going to make other people and then starting to get second, third, fourth on down opportunities. And it still amazes me that I will talk to people about investing hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars $250,000 in deals. And not too long ago, I was working as a physical therapist, wanting $65 a treatment was the dollars that I was dealing in. So it, you know, I'm blessed to be where I'm at. It's hard work, but also I think it's a blessing, but anybody can do it. Coming from a PT background, and my wife and I bought the two homes we lived in. Really done no real estate investing, and in, but through applying myself, you it can be done on your own. But you know, you can also do it with a mentorship type program. But you can just get out and do it and apply yourself consistently on a near daily basis. You know, same with fitness or any anything you want to train to do. I keep telling myself I'm gonna learn to play the guitar, but I got to buy a guitar first, but but I have, problem is I have no musical talent at all, but I, but I could at least learn to play some simple songs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, man, you put your mind to it. You can do really anything. Sure. Well, on that same vein uh, there, Nick, what would be some advice you'd give to listeners to help them grow their business? Um, If you're wanting in
0: multifamily business, well, one is just find some type of education and apply it, find a book. And, you know, I wouldn't just blindly go to the bookstore and buy something, but reach out to other people, Find people that have done what you're wanting to do and you, you've seen them do it and then go and ask them if you can tell them, follow them around or, or talk with them, ask what they did. Success leaves clues. So following someone else, you know, that, that's how I got here is, is through a mentorship program that we just repeat. It's not rocket science. When you get down to it, yeah, the analyzer is fairly complicated, but it's a series of steps that multiple people have done and done successfully. So there's no reason to go through the full learning process and get beat up find somebody that's done it and work with them.
1: Absolutely. Great advice, Nick. Really appreciate that. All right, man. Tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and get connected with you. Sure. First
0: of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's great. Great getting to know you a little better, but my website is thrivemultifamily.com. So that's T-H-R-I-V-E multifamily.com. You can put in your information there and there's a calendar link, or you can email me at Nick at Thrive Multifamily. And there's no K in Nick. So N-I-C at Thrive Multifamily.com.
1: Well, Nick, want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed getting to know you over this past several years and and congratulations on all the success thus far and definitely look forward to staying connected. Thanks, man. Thank you. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time.